Oh, it's been far too long. Welcome, everybody, to Martian Mello, uh, which Kyle Mello told me at the Tiger Cats game when I saw him last weekend uh, that you asked uh, Chat GPT to define TSN 1150 Hamilton for you, the origin story of the show. Yes, I did. We were uh, we were called <laughs> premier hosts of the network, and it said we had two different shows, the Morning Scrum and Martian Mello. Little did they know it was the same show. Yeah, that's awesome. We uh, we did both of them according to the computers. So thank you, computers, for knowing our lives inside and out. <laughs> By the way, it's been so long now. So I think we could peel the curtain back. And if there's any backlash, I take it all on myself since I am no longer an employee of Bell Media and TSN. <laughs> um, the reason why our show name was The Morning Scrum with Martian, well, with Martian Mello yep. was kind of as a safe keep. So no sports show in the GTA or anywhere else in Canada could take that name because it was already taken. Well, we've been off the air for uh, a hot minute. Has anybody <laughs> used the name Morning Scrum? <laughs> yeah, we were actually called the Morning Scrum, and then we just unofficially called ourselves, well, let's just call it Marshmallow, and our programming director and our, our station director Mike Neighbors was like, yeah, just call yourselves Marshmallow. It's fine. We just legally, we have to keep that name, The Morning Scrum, so nobody can copy it. It's kind of like how Labatt Blue owns the naming rights to, uh, it's the reason why that beer is called Belgian Moon, I believe in Canada, because it's actually Blue Moon, but it's also Rickard's White, just packaged differently. I don't know. It's all very confusing to me, <laughs> but but it's all just dumb legal stuff. So yes, uh, I, I am happy to be here with Kyle. We are going to be breaking down for you uh, the Johnny Manziel documentary. The reason we wanted to do this, Untold Johnny Football on Netflix now uh, if you want to go ahead and watch it for yourself, maybe even actually watch it before you listen to this. I like to do that personally when I listen to kind of like movie review podcasts and things like that. So I'll put that on the front end that maybe you'll want to watch it on Netflix and you know pause it and come back to us here later. But uh, we wanted to do this because obviously there's a CFL connection and Kyle and I were at TSN 1150 in Hamilton when we were the rights holders when Johnny Menzel was, of course, a Hamilton Tiger Cat, and I was doing play-by-play for radio when he was in Hamilton and Montreal. So uh, I thought it'd be great to get back together and talk about some of that because we've been crossing paths when we're down at Tim Hortons Field and we see each other as I'm doing some games down there. Uh, but before we do that, I actually want to throw it to an interview that Dan Lebetard did for Metal Arc Media. He used to work for ESPN uh, with Johnny Menzel himself because this might be shocking to people, Kyle. I don't think we're going to get Menzel on this podcast. Uh no. <laughs> so I, I figured we'd let somebody else talk to him and then we'll let people kind of hear him in his voice talking about the documentary. And then we'll come back in two minutes here and give ourselves uh, a little bit of a breakdown of the things that we noticed from. So here's Dan Levitard from the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gotts talking to the Johnny Football. I'm excited about this, not just this conversation, but also Untold on Netflix does a good job. And I really want to see the layers that I missed while it was happening on Johnny Manziel because it seems like it was great to be him and it seems like it was awful to be him. And I feel like we got an incomplete picture because he got grabbed by TMZ and the fame monster and he was very young and then he gets ransacked by the whole thing. And it felt to me while I was watching it, man, this guy might be struggling with some mental stuff that isn't being made any better by how we're treating him as a society, as a social media, when he's not yet an adult. So I don't mean to speak for him, but Johnny Manziel is with us. And I'll start here. Thank you for joining us, Johnny. Is this the place where I'm going to finally get the Manziel story that has all the layers where I can understand it a little bit better than I understood it while it was happening? Yeah, this this will be a little bit uh, a little bit different view that a lot of people got to see in the past. Um, like you said earlier, I think Untold tells a great story 
um, after watching this a couple of days ago. Um, yeah, I definitely feel that that's, that's what you're going to get. What were the parts where you got emotional watching it? I think just a lot of the stuff that has to do with my family, you know, um, you know, during those times, 2013, 14, going through the whole process of everything, you know, I don't know how much I was really aware because of, you know, just living my own life and, you know, struggling with things on my own, but how much it affected my family and uh, just the people closest to me um, in my life. So, you know, looking back at it now to see, you know, how they handled it, how it was for them, um, you know, definitely made me a little emotional. When was it fun and when was it dark? Like, can you separate these things and looking back at it? Or was there a lot of darkness that then got fueled by booze and was fun, but you realized that you were sort of self-medicating? Yeah, I, uh, I don't think it really got to a point of where I started to feel mental health struggles until I got to Cleveland. So, you know, I'd never really had any bad times um, up until probably the fall of 2014. College was great then, right? You were having a great time in college. It's all your dreams come true, yes? Yeah, it was, for sure. And did you get the hurt of the machine is using me? I'm making tons of money for this school, and I'm not getting much of it. Um, I'm not I'm not sure if that's how I felt at the time. Um, you know, I think I had just, at that point in time, outgrown College Station a little bit to where uh, being in a town like that just was, you know, it was hard to move. It was hard to breathe. It was hard to go to class. That's why I took online classes during um, my second season at A&M. Um, it was just really like being a, a shark in a fish tank at, at some point in time there. What happened once you got to the NFL? You enjoyed college, but that was your lowest time, you're saying. So what happened when you got to the NFL? You know, I think, um, you know, during my time in Cleveland, I think, you know, getting there, Early on, I was, you know, I lost confidence in my ability to be able to go out and do what I had always done really easily, really well. And, uh, you know, when you're struggling in, in your game and then you take it and you, you know, the football side is not going the way that you want it to. And then your home life and what you're doing, um, you know, when you're sitting by yourself and when you're trying to get away from the game of football, when that's just as big of a struggle as what you're dealing with um, on the field. You know, you just wake up every day and you're kind of going through a 24-7 struggle. And at that point in time in Cleveland, I don't think I really knew that I was depressed. You know, I don't think I knew uh, much of anything about a mental health struggle or that that was even a real possibility. Well, explain this part to me, though, Johnny, because college is great and you're not exploring any of these things. You're a kid. You're having fun. All your dreams come true. But at some point you were diagnosed as bipolar, correct? Yeah, this wasn't until 2017. And so what was happening before then? There was no darkness in college. There wasn't any issue where you would have to be introspective uh, because everything felt fun and great. Yeah, no, I, I didn't have to be at all. You know, I, I just was, you know, so in the in the flow of things that, you know, I never really had much time during those times at A&M to, to slow down. I, di I didn't really slow down. It was, um, you know, full blast all the time. And I didn't have a, I didn't have a chance then to just sit back and reflect and, um, you know, feel introspective like that or even go back into anything. So you weren't dark. Is it possible? Like, it sounds like what you're saying is the burden of being a professional quarterback in Cleveland is what essentially revealed to me that I was bipolar. You know, I don't think I found out um, that I was bipolar until, you know, a later date and time. 
you know, I think if you ask my family and people who observed me um, during the years before, I think they would have they would have told you that they saw signs of of things here and there. Um, but I think just the lull of life, you know, coming down from such a high um, has nothing to do with being in Cleveland or this or that, because, you know, the year after when I'm living in L.A. for the next couple of years, um, I think that's where it started to poke its head out a little bit more. Um, so I, I wouldn't say um, that I really figured out the majority of these struggles until I had gone out and lived some life um, and been away completely from the game of football for a while. Did you have a drinking problem? You know, looking back on it now, I think I definitely did at that time. You know, I was just nonstop blowing and going. And um, yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't good for me. It wasn't good for, you know, being a professional athlete. And uh you know, I was doing anything that I could to try and get out of my own reality and out of my own head um, for any period of time um, that it would allow me to. What did you imagine your pro career going like when you got there? And how soon did you realize I'm ill-equipped for what's happening right now? I'm not studying enough. I'm not doing the right things. Um, you know, I felt like when I came back uh, my second year in Cleveland, you know, early on in the season, you know, I, I felt like I was playing better. You know, a guy in Josh McCown got to Cleveland with us that year and instilled a ton of confidence in me. Um, he kind of got it back to where it was fun to be in the quarterback room and be able to go um, play football. And, you know, not until the end of that season with how that season went for us um, – did I think that it was going to go any differently? So, I mean, even after having a bad rookie year, getting in late in the season, you know, playing six, seven quarters of football throughout that whole year, you know, I still had a lot of confidence that I was going to be able to right the ship and be able to do um, the things that I needed to go be a good quarterback in the NFL. Um, you know, obviously that didn't end up happening, didn't end up transpiring, but um, you know, I had confidence all the way up until probably midway through the 2015 season. Untold Johnny Football premieres tomorrow. I'm really looking forward to this because this guy's story is interesting, and it sounds like he gave it all up. It sounds like he could look at it in retrospect and uh, learn some things that he didn't know at the time. Leaving football or being done with, jo uh, with football, Johnny, a relief? Or did you look at it and say, ah, I wasted a chance. I could have been better. Yeah, I mean, I have nobody to blame uh, for this situation other than myself. You know, it was completely up to me to go do the right things. And, um, you know, I did it. So looking back now, years later, um, you, you know, it's a great question. It took me a long time to really understand that there's more to life than just playing the game of football, that there's more to life and that you can be happy doing other things um, other than throwing a pigskin around. So. Um, I'm I'm more at peace with it now. You know, I'm able to to still watch the game, still able to be, um, you know, a fan of the game of football, um, and that's what I want it to be. You know, I don't want to feel like I did a couple years after I left the NFL, and be mad at the game and maybe be a little bit jaded. Um, so you know, life works in funny ways. Sometimes the way you think it's going to go is not necessarily what you're meant for, um, and and there's more to life. You know, so um, I'm I'm happy now and happier than I was um, 
during during those times for I, sure. I appreciate the gratitude and the perspective, but I want to try and pin you down. Leaving football is it a relief to you, or if you had to choose from between the two, do you look back on it and say, "Man, I wasted a golden opportunity," or is it a relief because now yeah, you're? Yeah. Of, of course, of course. There's not there's nothing worse than than wasted talent. You know, you can't say that you know what I did during my time in college um, didn't have an immense amount of talent. So, you know. It, it is a little bit of a relief, but at the same time, um, you know, you still live with some regret and being mad about how it how it played out. Johnny, did you really think the wig, the mustache, those things, that disguise was going to work in Vegas? Did you? I mean, <laughs> I, uh, you know, there's no way. I don't, I don't really, that that whole time, you know, the end of Cleveland for me, you know, that year was such a tough year. I think I would have done anything um, to to get out. So. Whether I thought it was going to work or this or that or not, you know, that was the first time where I was really willing and, and ready to do absolutely anything to get out of uh, uh, the situation that I was in. Put us in there then. Put us with you at whatever that is where you're saying, I need to blow off some steam in Vegas because I need to get away from this poison. This is not healthy for me. What What is happening in your life the days leading up to that? Um. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure towards the end of that season, you know, I was injured, so I wasn't playing. It was our last game of the season. Um, you know, my mindset was, it, get out of Cleveland. Maybe I won't ever have to come back here. Maybe I'll get cut. I won't have to, you know, I won't even have to step foot back in the city again. I felt while some of that was happening, Johnny, tell me if I've got it wrong. You may be too young. Charlie Sheen, when he was disintegrating in public, it felt to me like that's what was happening with you, that you're a rich kid. The media is just pounding you. You're looking like the face of privileged irresponsibility, throwing away a great opportunity. And I'm thinking as I'm watching it, this dude's not well. He needs some help. He needs some people. And I'm sure they were reaching out to you. I'm sure your family was trying. But who's going to reach out and get this young man's attention? so he doesn't keep you know setting himself on fire yeah i mean uh, my family tried their best i think i just removed myself from everybody you know uh, i removed myself from my friends i completely went to a new place and um you know i almost feel for a point in time that um you know i had so many people around me that were doing so, so much for me that i never learned any life on my own you know, i never really did anything for myself or you know, learned any lessons the hard way or had to deal with um, anything like that. So, you know, as much as somebody can try, you can always lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So, you know, it had to be something that I realized on my own, you know, one day the party's going to end, one day this is all going to end, and you're stuck sitting there with just you and yourself. Um, and those times are, you know, what I learned the most from. And what did you learn? What can you tell us that you learned that gives you a new perspective in adulthood? Because I imagine all of that, what we're talking about, changes you profoundly. Yeah, it does. Um, you know, I think for a while when you're when you're young like that, you think everything's going to be, you know, for, for where I was in life, life was easy. You know, things were good. You have people kissing your ass all the time. Um, you know, you're the talk of the town. You're this, you're that. Um, and when you get internally with yourself, when you can't look in a mirror, when you can't, um, you know, when you get to a point where you start to see struggles in life and the whole, you know, house of cards that you have around you is kind of just falling down. Um, you know, when you get to a point in your life where 
you can't even walk by a mirror. You can't look at yourself. You can't really stomach the fact of what decisions you've made in your life. Um, and there's nobody else around. The party's over. All the fun's done. All the people that are kissing your ass were gone. Um, you know, there's things that change inside yourself. I don't know the best way to really describe it. I don't think it was a, you know, a flip switching kind of moment. You know, it gradually happened a little bit more over time. Um, but, it, but it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is, you know, um, when you get so down that you want to, uh, you know, no longer be living on this earth and no longer living in this life. Um, you know, there are definitely things in your head and in, in the internal battle that, uh, you know, that change. Did the alcohol make that worse? Um, probably. I'm sure it had something to do with it. Because I can't imagine the kind of darkness that you were experiencing there and how grateful you are to have emerged from it. Because I think a lot of people are going to be surprised by this story, Johnny, and perhaps make you slightly more human than you've been. You've been a cartoon character for a long time. A celebrity cartoon character. Agreed. Your dad, when you look back on it, or the people reaching out to you trying to rescue you, is there a place where you push them away that causes you more heartbreak than others? No, I don't think so. You know, I think getting to the point where I'm at in my life today with the relationship that I have with my dad and my family um, are better today because we've gone through that. And, uh, you know, I think it all happens for a reason. And you allowed them to love you? They reached you? Yeah. Don Lebatard. He said while you were off there, uh, while the connection was bad, he had mentioned that uh, you have lost a lot of weight and that he admires that. What got into you? Why did you decide? I thought it was all, I, I thought we enjoyed being about the munchie. Yeah. Oh, it's slurring again. Okay. The connection yeah. is bad again, unfortunately. Yeah. Back to Magnus. Okay. Back to Magnus <laughs> for Magnus. And this is going about as well as it could go. Thank you, Billy, again for laughing in my face. Stugatz. Magnus. I mean, I am, which is the worst. Can you guys back. hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Hello? Yes, sir. Action. Hello? Action. Man, I'm really sorry. This is the. This is literally the worst way to ever do this. This is burning my heart that this is happening. But if you could hear me. Just understand, I'm sorry. This is the Dan Lebatar Show with the Stugats. When you look back on it, were there many teammates who were confronting you about being a better leader, better quarterback? You know, at that point in time, no. You know, I think every opportunity that I've got over the last couple of years to be around my teammates, you know, I've, uh, you know, I've let them know the remorse that I have about how I was as a teammate about how I was as a, you know, a worker in, in, in that locker room. You know, I have a lot of regrets about, you know, my second year at A&M. You know, we were a better team than we went out on the field and performed. And I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, having your quarterback not be there grinding the way that he was um, the year before. When you, when you look back at, like, regrettable conversations and spots you had to put almost teammates in because they're trying to help you and cover things up, like I saw you had other quarterback, another quarterback at Texas A&M taking and passing drug tests for you. Like, what put us in there that conversation, asking a player to do that? Like, was yeah, that... See, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with that or think that happened whatsoever. So, you know, there may be a piece from, you know, my buddy's Nate's side, my buddy Nate's side where he saw something like that or thought he did. But 
Um, in no way, shape, or form um, did that ever happen. Did I ever go to another quarterback or another person on our team um, and ask him to do that, to pass a drug test? So, you know, there's a lot that gets lost in translation. Um, this documentary is pretty spot on, but to kind of harp on that one thing, uh, that never happened whatsoever for one second at a and You know, Coach Sumlin, um, I will say, was hard on me. You know, he was strict on me, and he did did put things in place um, for me to try and hold me accountable and, and do certain things. So I'll always be grateful for him um, for doing that. Johnny, you're quoted as saying, I have a deep hatred against the NCAA. Why? Um, you know, I, I think just the way, um, that they handled certain situations, you know, just certain stories that we've all seen from the past of what an impermissible benefit was of what, um, you know, certain stories that happened throughout the years that you hear about, um, just rubbed me the wrong way. You know, I think the current state of college football was the way that it is because of how, you know, the way it should be because of how big the business has got. Um, of college football, you know, is one of the biggest draws, the biggest shows on television throughout the year, the money that's brought into it, um, you know, everything. It, it is um, better and, and more correct the way that things are now being able to capitalize off a of name, image and likeness um, for people or the, for people that are bringing a ton of uh, monetary value. Untold Johnny Football Netflix premieres tomorrow. Why'd you do it, Johnny? Why is it important to do it? You know, I think, you know, for me, I, I love the stories that Untold um, has been telling for the last couple of years that I've been watching. You know, I walk down the street every day and, and have people come up to me and be like, you know, are you still playing football? Are you this or that? Um, and it felt like the right time to eliminate, you know, questions that I get to tell my story, to put a chapter of my life behind and be able to finally move on. You know, I, I don't want to, even though I'll deal with, you know, being Johnny football and dealing with the story for probably the rest of my life, at least, at least it gives me some closure. At least it allows me to, um, you know, move on to a different phase into my life. What's important for you, for people to know? Yeah, now I'm a, I'm a happier person. You know, I'm in a better place now with less than I was you know, in the past with more. And, and I can sit here and, and say that, um, you know, I've got a smile on my face today. I've got gratitude. I've got my family. Um, you know, those are things that I can say I didn't have at one point in time in my life. What do you look back on when you look back at your college days and think most fondly about? You know, I think I'm very thankful for, you know, my university. I'm very thankful for Texas A&M, uh, my teammates, um, my coaches, you know, I still um, got to go live a dream for for what I for, you know, what I wanted to do as a kid, you know, what I wanted to do growing up to be able to go make the impact um, that I did have the amount of fun, win some football games, um, you know, win a Heisman Trophy. Um, you know, for, for me, it was legendary. And for me, um, sitting here today, you know, you know, I appreciate the ride. Johnny, because there were some positives, like winning the Heisman, as you pointed out, beating Alabama at Alabama, and your nickname is football. I mean, that has to feel good. I mean, it would for yeah, me. I mean, yeah. I mean, it does. Everybody and a, and a lot of people like to harp on the negative, and I think for a long time I did as well. But, you know, I sit here today, hold my head high with what I accomplished on that college football field, 
wish I could have continued it on further into the NFL. Um, and it just wasn't meant to be. Johnny, do I have this right? I'm reading between the lines. I feel like you went from college to the pros and you got to the pros and you're like, oh, shit, this is a military school. I don't like the way this feels at all. This is not fun. This is responsibility. This is playbooks. This is pressure. This doesn't feel the same. This is a business. No, um, not, not the pressure, not the military style. You know, I grew up with that um, in my high school football program. Um, I'm not necessarily sure at that time that I really felt pressure. I really felt like I felt struggles in life. Okay. When you get up every single day and you can't see color and you can't um, put a smile on your face, when you can't do anything like that and you get to a point in your life where your head is telling you that you're absolutely drowning, has nothing to do with football, has nothing to do with anything, what team you're on, what the locker room is. You can't get up in your day and have a good day has nothing to do with anything else that's going on outside of that. Um, that's where I was in my life at that time. It wasn't me coming to a realization that, um, Oh, maybe this isn't what I want to do or, or whatever the facts facts may have been or whatever may look like. I was just struggling in life with people coming up to me and asking if I was okay. Me being like, of course, you know, I didn't know that it was okay to tell somebody, you know, I'm struggling. It seems like football players aren't really trained to do that part, right? Because I was reading stories this weekend. Werfs is moving from right tackle to left tackle in Tampa. He's great. He's great at what he does, and he needs to go see a team psychologist. And he's being quoted as saying, I didn't know I could talk about my feelings. I didn't know yeah. that that was a thing that I, I could tell people about my anxiety. Football does not welcome that exactly. No, and I think when I would meet people like that during my two years, you know, I was stubborn and and not allowing myself to be vulnerable and be open um, and be honest about what I was really going through. You know, I would sit down with somebody like that and maybe say 10 words throughout an entire uh, meeting with somebody um, because I just couldn't do it at that time. How are you now? Like, does watching this back, does that bring up any of these dark places or is it like therapeutic for you? No, I don't think it brings up any dark places. You know, I'm in a better place today. So, you know, bringing this, you know, watching this documentary and seeing um, this kind of get portrayed, you know, I'm excited about it. You know, I'm happy about it. You know, I, I have ways of coping when I'm having days like that. You know, I have methods and things to do now um, that allow me freedom in my own mind. You know, I'm not a prisoner of my own mind like I was at one point in the past. Are you able to look back on these crazy fun times that you had? Like, like I, you've partied in Vegas with Gronk. Like, or are all these just negative memories for you now? Are you able to, like, pinpoint specific nights? Like, man, that was a wild fun night. That, that is, uh, you're being a little absolute there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 there were plenty of times I still look back to this day and be like, you know, that was a blast. Was that situation sometimes even... You know, even real life, you know, what a time. But, you know, I, I only look back on things now as a positive. Um, and, that, and that's really the way that I'm and that I'm rolling moving forward. What was the best night? Come on, paint oh, the picture. Oh, come on. See, I knew that's what you were going to do. I knew that's all you cared about. You have not been impressive in this interview. <laughs> it's too hard to pinpoint one. There, there, there's some great nights out there and, and probably, you know, a lot that I'm going to have to keep to myself. 
That's what he See, wanted. There's something See, in there, no, Dan. There's, there's something in there. Thank you. That's why you're the investigative. You didn't get it out of That's him, why though. you're the investigative <laughs> journalist that you are. It's important that it's tell there, me, though. Tell me about the best party. Yes, he had a lot of great parties. Thank you for getting to the bottom of that excellent investigative work. It, it was work cool by being you, you right? But he had no yeah, one yeah, pee for so him. Cool. Nobody yeah, peed for him, yeah, But be clear on that. No one peed for him. Just be clear on that, you asshole. Uh, thank you, uh, Johnny. Uh, just before you get out of here, because I did not know this part. I did not. I mean, that you purchased the gun to take your own life. That that you were fortunate that it just didn't go off the right way. You know, I can't really tell you exactly. That night was a lot of a blur. But you know, I did have this plan in my head throughout um, throughout that year that that's what I was going to do. You know, I had no idea. Um, how I was going to overcome um, up what I just fucked up that year. You know, how do you go from the high of the high, um, give up all that? You know, you waste your talent. You, you know, you ruin your NFL career. You know, your football career is most likely over. You know, what's next? What do you, you know, you hear this with guys all the time, but, you know, life after football, people have a hard time adjusting to that. And, and really when your whole identity you know, is flushed down the toilet and you have nobody else to blame but yourself, you know, what else is there to live for? You know, how do you overcome this? You know, it, it felt like a point um, where I just wanted to give up and, and you know, disappear and, and not for just a, a small amount of time. Johnny, thank you for sharing your story with us, sir. And thank you again. I will tell the audience, Netflix, Johnny Football, Untold is the series. It's was the best party. It's exceptional. Uh, thank you, Johnny. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you, boys. Have a good day. All right. Apologies for Chris's questions. You're good, bro. <laughs> all right. There you go. The full interview of all things Johnny Football with Dan Lebitard. Uh, the first thing that jumped out to me, and there's a thousand different directions to take this conversation, obviously, Kyle, mm-hmm. is... We'll get to the CFL connections of this and like what it meant and all the rest. But for the first little bit, I do just actually want to focus on the documentary itself, the way that things were covered. The first thing I'm always cognizant of whenever I'm viewing a documentary is who has final say on these things? Like, what is the messaging? Is it Manziel that gets to make the final call or is it not? And what made me aware of this a lot was basically The Last Dance, which I think is one of the best documentaries ever made. But Michael Jordan had the final say on everything. Like he was essentially an executive producer. It was a a a ten hour Jordan commercial, and it's friggin' sweet because Jordan <laughs> Jordan getting to make a Jordan commercial turned out to be amazing. But as I was watching this, I was trying to determine, okay, like is Johnny having the final say on this stuff? Is this the real honest truth? Scale of of zero to ten, how close do you think we got to the real God's honest, no filter Johnny Manziel truth about his journey? About a two and a half. Really? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't think we, we found out anything about Johnny. Actually, he, here's my thing. Did we find stuff out about Johnny way back when? I think we did. Do we know anything about Johnny Manziel today and right. what he's doing post-football? Goose egg. I know nothing about Johnny and his life moving forward. I know listening to interviews. That documentary, I thought the end was kind of rushed. Um but that was just me. You can tell that Johnny is still not very careful, but about what he's saying, about how he's portrayed. Mm -hmm. He wants to be portrayed in the light of, he was a talented football player, which he was. I'm not taking anything away from Johnny Menzel, but the aura around Johnny, um, I saw that documentary and I thought to myself, 
I can see how it all fell apart. Oh, I definitely yeah. can see that. Not just with Johnny, with the people that he was surrounding himself with. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, like all of his buddies. They, but this is the funny thing, right? One of the main threads that runs throughout the documentary is him being surrounded by a crew of people who were just yes men, who were going to do anything to try and help him and help mm -hmm. him break the rules. And that includes his family because, oh, my God, his dad. We'll get to that. Oh, but yeah. But when I see him being surrounded by a group of like yes men, the only thing they show of Johnny now, which I know the point of the documentary was more so about like his football life and then like, oh, you know, wherever he is now, he's just kind of done with football is how they framed it. But all they show of him now is just drinking beers in Scottsdale. Like they kept three or four different times they would cut back and it would be him in present moment just crushing beers. And there's like these super slow-mo shots of him like, you know, doing <laughs> chugging beers with his boys in Scottsdale. And I'm like, hey, I'm not here to vilify that, but also it's kind of like the whole thread of the thing is you surrounded yourself with the wrong people and you were just out partying. And then they show shots of him now and he's surrounding himself with a bunch of dudes that look like him and he's in his backyard in Scottsdale just partying. And I'm like, he hasn't changed at all. No. And that's my, that's my whole point, right? Like, what do we know about Johnny moving forward? We know very little. Did we even mention of where he is in his sobriety journey? None. By the looks of it, he's still getting hammered. Yeah, pretty the first obvious. scene of the documentary, his buddies are at his house and they're like chugging stuff. And I'm like, what is happening? Where am I? Texas A&M? Yeah. Uh, and I, again, this is the interesting thing too, right? Is Johnny is, for as much of a mess as his life has been, he is somebody who has made shrewd business decisions, as we'll get to the autograph stuff that they talk about in this documentary as well. And like I saw that he's opening a bar across the street from Kyle field called Johnny footballs, like mm -hmm. like at this football season. And I'm like, so he's probably got like a business manager at this point. And one of the, the interesting things in this documentary was when his Aaron, uh, Eric Burkhart, the agent said, listen, Johnny, do you want to be a first round quarterback? Or do you just want to be famous? Cause you have to make a decision. Like you're already famous. We can make you super famous, but you're not going to be a first round quarterback or we can try to make you a first round quarterback. And I mean, so many things happen in the stock that, again, hopefully we'll have time to get to it all. But it's like it's like he tried to kind of half-ass do the, I want to be the first-round quarterback and be the guy. But as Cliff Kingsbury and different people said in the documentary, he was never really that dude. He couldn't really do it. And now he's just turned towards, I have a business manager, I have my name, image, and likeness, and I'm going to profit off of it as much as I humanly can by lining up Netflix documentary opening a bar at Texas A&M, like whatever is coming next, he's basically going to become, it seems like in his future, Pete Rose, like sitting outside of casinos and, <laughs> and writing autographs for people for massive amounts of money, just based off of the lore of who he was, not who he is or what he even became. It's, it's funny, man. Like he's living in infamy and he's profiting off of it in a way that it really makes me, it, as I was watching it, I kept looking back on, 2018 in Hamilton and Montreal. And I just kept thinking like, man, we were right smack in the middle of him getting diagnosed as bipolar and still probably going out in Montreal and partying and all the rest. And I'm like, and, and we were trying to cover it as well as we possibly could with the tiger cats. But it was like, man, did we have the blinders on? Like, were we being fed all the information of, yeah, Johnny's trying really hard and all the rest. And, and we thought it was the truth for a while. It, it's made me reassess watching this documentary the way that I covered him in person when he was in the CFL. Well, there's a couple of things here. There, there's omissions from the documentary that they don't touch on. The um, assault allegations uh, against his former girlfriend, they didn't really touch on it. They touched on it a little bit, um, but then immediately like moved on. That's my yeah. whole thing with the documentary is every time they brought up a point, they just rushed through it to get to the next point. 
And I thought to myself, was that Johnny saying, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it. Let's, let's move on. Or this is too deep for me. Um, Like for example, um, Burkhardt dropping the line of, I heard the fourth string quarterback at Texas A&M was doing the piss test for him. And I'm just like, wait a second. Right. Do we get the reaction of the first string quarterback from Texas <laughs> and, A&M? By the way, I didn't waste time trying to look it up and who it was. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I have no idea who that would have been. But I, I think he has clarified. I haven't listened to the full Lebuchard interview that we played for people at the start here, but I caught most of it. I believe in that interview he clarified that that wasn't a thing. But again, why am I supposed to believe that? Oh, yeah. Like, because Because let's be real about this. If he was potentially failing drug tests, didn't Reggie Bush have his Heisman trophy taken away after the fact? Well, that was the whole thing with his, um, somebody bought his mother a house um, for because they were using Reggie Bush um, kind of as a ploy for autographs and all that right. stuff. They were doing a bunch of marketing stuff with Reggie Bush when it was super taboo. Like you weren't allowed to do that. When Johnny came around, it was kind of like, this is stupid. These guys should really make their own money. <laughs> and now it's like, it's open well, sesame, baby. Well, yeah, I mean, it's 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 craziness right now. One of the things I took away was obviously how far ahead of his time he was in just basically having a mm-hmm. bone to pick with Mark Emmert in the NCA, where he's like, "You you guys are making so much money off of me," and I I'm somebody who, as I was watching that documentary on Johnny, I'm thinking back to the Pony Excess, right? The ESPN Thirty for Thirty. I'm thinking about Eric Dickerson taking the gold-plated uh, Trans Am from Texas A&M when they were in the Southwest Conference and then not going to A&M and keeping the car because what the hell else was A&M going to do? Go, hey, we gave him a car and he didn't come to our school. They're going to be like, wait, you gave him a car? You're not allowed to do that. Like, they were going to call mm-hmm. themselves out. So, like, players were leveraging this way back in the 70s and 80s. And, yeah, Johnny was one of the first people that I can think of. I mean, obviously, Ed O'Bannon is what everybody references as kind of the turning point in the NCAA of, hey, name, image, likeness being used in the NCAA video games. We should be able to make money off of this. But as I was watching it and I saw $37 million in free publicity for Texas A&M when he won the Heisman Trophy in 2012, and then the thought crossed my mind, and I'm sure there's got to be some great article out there from somebody who can do the adjustment based on the era and the year and the income and the current salaries being made, because that's really what they are with the NIL deals of the top quarterbacks in football in the NCAA. What would Johnny's number have been? How would you even, how would you even put a number on what his value would have been in NIL back in 2012 and 13? It was hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars. I I believe that he changed college station. Remember uh, that was the first year going into the sec Johnny's freshman year. And they didn't know if they were going to be competitive. And all of a sudden they were beating Alabama. Like it was, it was Johnny time and it kind of faded over time where you realize, Oh, this guy has some, some personal troubles um, that are going to stay with them his entire career. And then it went out with him in college and then it came back in the NFL. Um, And then obviously the documentary gave a behind the scenes aspect uh, of that situation. Um, I think one of the numbers and I have it here uh, when you told me yesterday, Hey, you want to do a, a, podcast on the Manziel documentary I said sure so I was taking notes kind of during the the podcast or during the documentary yeah. uh, just the certain numbers that would stick out to me and there was one here Texas A&M Foundation received 750 million dollars Johnny's Heisman year that was 300 million dollars more than any previous year like that's the difference of Johnny Manziel boosters that were out of the picture because they're like we're not that good and then Johnny comes around and they're calling, hey, I want a box. 
Yeah. Wait, we haven't heard from you in, in 11 years. Here's $25 million. Oh, you want a new building? Yeah, I'll, I'll add on to that building. And that's the difference of college football and what sports can do for faculty, students, infrastructure at the university. Um, it, it, it's It's pretty alarming because it went on for a very long time of just people making money off of these kids backs and nothing was being done about it you know uh, obviously topic of mind is, is johnny menzel and i'm thinking back i'm like man can we do a documentary on tim tebow because <laughs> well, that was crazy and it lasted longer <laughs> i believe they are doing a netflix documentary on tim tebow and the fact that he was like the savior that was surrounded by all of the criminals with the florida gators yeah and they're actually doing something on that but this that's actually something interesting too that i was thinking about while watching this is very much the same way that the the one week news cycle has become one day and the one day news cycle has become one hour things come and go and it's just like boom it happened move on to the next thing next thing next mm -hmm. thing because people are constantly searching in your feed to find the newest news this is the type of story it struck me while i was watching it it feels like we shouldn't be telling already because to your point earlier about like what is he now like this story is so incomplete he's so young like there's, you can look back on it, but it's still kind of fresh. Like these are the type of stories that we used to wait 15, 20, 25 years to be able to create. But now you're seeing like, and maybe this is just me getting older. I'm seeing documentaries coming out on sports moments that I lived. And I'm like, I used to watch like, you know, June 17, 1994. And I'm like, I gotta watch this. I've always mm -hmm. seen the white Bronco stuff, but I don't really know what happened with OJ that day. And you watch it and you're like, oh shit. That is crazy. Yeah. But now you're seeing like the 2000s Ravens, the greatest defense of all time. And it goes into all the crazy stories about them, Ray Lewis and Ed Reed. And I'm like, dude, I was nine. I remember watching them. And as I'm watching this Manziel thing, my personal connection, I also obviously wore number two for a school that had similar colors. And I had a you know white face mask like Texas A&M. And I wore a clear visor like Johnny. And there was times where I would wear like a half sleeve like Johnny. I literally wanted to look and feel and act and run around like Johnny Manziel. Did I have the athleticism? Never. But I was just playing dress up because it was fun. Because Johnny was cool. He was the coolest thing in the sport, pro, amateur, whatever. And seeing the way that he swaggered around and had so much fun playing the game, I would play or be a backup at McMaster, depending on the year, you know, 12, 13. I would see him on the schedule. Texas A&M is playing against, for example, Alabama. The game that they detail, of course, the upset in Tuscaloosa in his first year in 2012. I forget who we were playing that day for McMaster, but I saw it on the schedule. And I distinctly remember finishing our game and like not really talking to anybody on the team and getting on my bike and like exit stage left, basically riding my bike as hard as I possibly could home because it was a 4 p.m. kickoff for Bama against Texas A&M and John It was Manziel. the CBS afternoon game. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. The, the late slot on CBS. And I was like, I'm not missing this. I don't yeah. care if I have my own football life that's going on. Like, I, I had to get home and watch Johnny. That's how crazy it was. Like, a kid in Canada is, like, bailing home as quickly as possible who is a quarterback in university to watch that quarterback for, play for his university. <laughs> it's like, when I think back about that, I'm like, that's amazing. I played a game against Waterloo where I played pretty bad. But it was in 2013. I didn't play to the level I, I liked. I was really angry at myself. I forget what the stat line was, but it wasn't good. And I remember finishing the game and doing the same thing, bailing out. I went down the back tunnel at McMaster, underneath the stadium, grabbed my bike, boom, gone. Didn't do media, didn't do available, didn't see my teammates, like didn't even shower, like took off my pads and went mm -hmm. home. 
because I had to watch Johnny. And that's the insanity of this whole thing. And by the way, you're not alone in that. Um, I've heard the same stories about LeBron James, where you had Cleveland Cavaliers players before LeBron ever played for the Cavs, who was playing at Akron. His high school (laughs) games were on ESPN. And you would look in the front row and see like Drew Gooden, who is like prime with the Cleveland Cavaliers and all these guys, because they had to see the next great thing. Now, I'm not saying anybody thought Johnny Manziel was going to be to the level of LeBron James. Johnny was good, but Johnny needed kind of the right system in order to be successful. That was something else that that kind of irked me a little bit about the documentary is when Johnny said, and he has said this in the past as well. He said, well, I never had the right system and, and the, or I never had the right culture around me. And I was thinking to myself, that might be true for success. First off, it's the Cleveland Browns. They haven't had success in forever, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's number one. Number two, that's ultra success. But I look at it as you could have been a five, 10-year player in the NFL. That's on you. That's not culture. There's yep. a lot of quarterbacks out there that are, even in the NFL, that are bad, but they've stuck around. Whether they're borderline starters or whether they're you know backup quarterbacks um, who, when they step in, can, can do something and help a team win. Look at Chad Henney. Yeah. Like, dude sat in Kansas City being the backup to, to Patrick Mahomes, and Mahomes goes down in the playoff game. What does he do? First drive that he's in, touchdown. Like, those guys are professionals, and Johnny was never that. I think Johnny loved being the center of attention. I think he hated the limelight, and I think those are different. Because yeah. the limelight, you get scrutinized. Attention, it's only the positives that people look at. I mean, you can bring the negative aspects of it, but that's not because of your performance. Johnny Menzel didn't play in the NFL for five years or 10 years because he wasn't talented enough. He was definitely talented enough, but he brought all that extra with him. And I mentioned Tim Tebow before. Tim Tebow's kind of in the same boat, but for the complete opposite. Everybody loved Tim Tebow so much. He was everybody's savior. Yeah. Nobody wanted the attention of a backup quarterback taking all the air out in the room so that's why he was never didn't stay in the nfl for a long could he have been a, a second third string quarterback for 10 15 years hell yeah 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 he could have middled his way through the league and, and found jobs and plucked away and played a role and yeah but too much attention too much heat. it's it's amazing when you look at johnny's timeline again we'll get to the cfl connections on this in a second but cleveland browns 2014-15 right so he, he freshman year 2012 at texas a&m then he wins the Heisman, first freshman to ever do. So 2013, he goes back. It's a total shit show. He ends mm-hmm. up leaving school because he's like, I got to get the hell out of this place. This sucks. It's always a bad idea when your life is out of control to accelerate. Like as a general rule, when your life is out of control, don't press the gas and go, you know what I should do? My life's out of control. Instead of going back for another year and getting my life right and being prepared to put, to put my foot down on the throttle, I'm just going to put the throttle down as hard as I can right now, and I'm going to go to the NFL. That's what he did. And I think that that had a significant change in the way that he ended up acting with the Browns as well. But he's with the Browns for 14, 15, gets let go. There's the 16, 17 dark period. And then it's, of course, the CFL connection. We'll get to that in a second. But the thing I wanted to point out, there's a couple of moments in this documentary that really jumped out because I did the same thing, Kyle, phone in hand, taking notes as it was going on. Mm -hmm. I think Kevin Sumlin's, just when I think about the mystique of Johnny football, Kevin Sumlin's freshman rule on media I've I've never known about that, and I think that, that really helped build up the mystery of this like little white guy running around tearing up the SEC as a freshman. 
and he doesn't speak to the media because Kevin Sumlin put that rule in where you couldn't talk. The only thing he did was before the Heisman and he came out and he was quirky and charming. And, and I just, I was like, man, I'd never considered that before, but in terms of building the lore of him, when you don't talk, like think about Colin Kaepernick since he left the NFL, he went through a long period, obviously a lot of different circumstances, but he went through a long period where he just didn't talk. He didn't say anything. And it was like, the less you talk, the more people wonder, who are you? What are you doing? Like they get curious. The interest level goes up. Whether that was strategic or not by M and, uh, by A&M and Sumlin, I'm not sure, but I found that to be an interesting moment. Another one was his dad blaming Texas A&M because he said, you know, when you come from Tyvee in Kerrville, Texas, it, where it's basically a military institute and everybody has to dress the same and act the same and practice the same and hold to the same standard. He's like, you know, when you give your son to an institution, I don't know what the exact quote is. Maybe I'll be able to find it and throw that clip in here. But when he says, you you go to an institution, you expect them to take your son and to build character and morals into him. I'm sitting next to my girlfriend watching this. She goes, uh, no, that's your job, dad. Yeah. So <laughs> I put the same thing in my notes about the dad's comment. I yeah. don't have the exact quote here. But right before that, when he talked about the coaching staff and the fact that, oh, they're supposed to you know take your son and turn him into a good young man. Right. Right before that, he said his son was never held accountable and he blames the coaches. And then I was thinking to myself, okay, all this enabler stuff, I can see where it comes from now. Yeah. Because how dare you blame a coach for, and again, I'm going to put this as kindly as I can, raise a jackass, give him to a coach, and then he comes out a jackass, and then you blame the coach. <laughs> and it's like, no, he didn't fix him, but he didn't break him. No, that's on no. you. Like yeah. he was the same self-centered guy stepping into Texas A&M as he was in Kerrville, Texas. And it just all came to a steam when you threw money and fame in there. Yeah. And when you see the behind the scenes stuff of him going out and making money, signing autographs and going to sit courtside and do all these things. Again, it makes me reassess when he came into Hamilton and the first time that he had a media availability, he was wearing a wheels up hat. You know what wheels up is for anybody out there that doesn't know when you're watching college game day and they say, well, today's celebrity guest picker is presented by wheels up. It's a private airline. Mm-hmm. It's like it's you book the planes. They fly you from point A to point B. It's a PJ. It's a private jet. And Johnny showed up and did his media availability, not in a tie cats hat, not in CFL, not in A&M, not in Browns, not in NFL. He was wearing like, yeah, I came here on a private jet. I got this hat from some guy. I, he probably partied in the hat the night before. He had media availability for all we know when he got to Hamilton, whatever. It's like, but this was one of those things that I really realized. It's like, you see the the thread line. Basically, the second he leaves Kerrville, he leaves the, the construct that allows him to be under control. You can see the deterioration immediately. Like he's on campus as a freshman. He's in trouble. Then the trouble begins when he's on campus and he's being a celebrity. Then he just leans into it. He goes in the NFL. He decides to create more trouble. Then he tries to create so much trouble, he gets himself kicked off of the Cleveland Browns, which he successfully does. He he doesn't care about getting back to the team on a Sunday because he's partying in Vegas on a Saturday night and he misses all that the flights. Crazy. He misses all the flights and he's like, fuck it. I'm just going to go hard tonight. It's like, yeah. what? When he says that in the documentary where he's like, I looked at all the flights, I couldn't make any of them, and I just decided, screw it. I'm not going back to Cleveland. It's like, how does somebody not that's with you go, Johnny, what do you mean you're not going back to Cleveland? Yeah. There's a there's a game tomorrow. 
you're on the active roster. You, you can't just decide I'm not going back to Cleveland. <laughs> like, but he, all of these things carrying all the way through into the CFL and into after the CFL. And now like, it's all the same guy. It's all the same guy. All of the behavior is the same. The acts are different. The behavior is the same. That was my main takeaway from all of this. Yeah. And obviously being around Johnny for a short amount of time um, in training camp. And I didn't have, you know, a lot of discussions per se with Johnny. Um, but there was this aura around Johnny and, and maybe I'm wrong in this. Um, all the Thai cat spiders were saying the right things. He just never fit in. Yeah. I, I always felt like he was on an Island um, when he was here in Hamilton. And there's nothing to say that that wasn't the same thing in the NFL where, and he talked about it too. He wasn't having fun anymore. And you could see him, you know, warming up in training camp and, you know, there's four quarterbacks for the Cleveland Browns and Johnny would throw a pass, not even say a word to the other quarterbacks and like just walk back and just so leisurely be distant from the rest of his teammates. And I thought to myself, maybe that wasn't the same Johnny as Texas A&M, but he does mention in the documentary that football wasn't fun anymore. And maybe the fun of football kept him engaged enough where he could feel like he was a part of the team. And then the second that disappeared, it, the, the rest of it crumbled where you could be playing as poorly as you can on a football team. You have to stick with your teammates because if you don't and all of a sudden they kind of put you away on an island, it's only a certain amount of time until everything breaks down. Yeah. And I like to be fair, I was we were in and around the locker room a pretty decent amount when Johnny was mm-hmm. with the cats. And and I. I could never get a real tell. Like, was he accepted by everybody? Was it just all like a big show? Was he, were they genuinely taking him in? Did they have zero belief that he was going to be with them for longer than a month or two? Like, I I, I still don't know. And maybe if mm-hmm. Ticats players see this or guys that were around the team, I'd love to know in all honesty, because um, I could never get a read on it. Like, I was never confident enough to be like, he didn't fit in. But I also never get the sense that like, oh, yeah, this is working out perfectly. And yeah. that like one of the things I think that a couple of things jumped out to me on this was Dave Naylor tweeting out after the documentary came out that one of his favorite Manziel memories with Hamilton was when he stayed behind and didn't join the team on their way home after the Hamilton preseason game in Montreal, which we broadcast because it was Formula One weekend in Montreal. Now that you see the documentary and the, the bills up to his ear because he's holding 10 <laughs> $10,000 in cash and all the rest. A Formula One in Montreal, the Grand Prix weekend. That's a marquee-ass event, man. Like, it's expensive to get in. It's pricey. It's every bar in Montreal has got everything you would ever want in your life. That weekend is Johnny football. Mm-hmm. Like, like Grand Prix weekend there. For him to stay behind afterwards, hey, I did the same thing. I went to the race the next day. I was watching qualifying while I was calling Johnny playing football like on the radio because we had RDS in our booth and we were watching qualifying happening because we could see circuit Gilles Villeneuve off in the distance. So I get why, but it's like, that's one of those moments where I go like, <laughs> was he ever really in? Oh yeah. Did, did I, I 100% really agree with that. Um, you know, pulling the curtain back, uh, our, we did our show from training camp from McMaster yeah. um, every day. And we were there at 6am to 9am. Um, but actually we were there longer. We would walk from the cafeteria where we're doing our show, right. uh, where the Thai cats would have breakfast. And then we'd walk 
to the stadium. And I would get there at 5.30 in the morning. So I used to always park right where the doors are to the stadium. So because the cafeteria was right across. So I always have the best parking spot because I was the first one there. Right. So I'd park there and then whatever. We do our show, go to training camp, and then do media. Um, whatever it finished, you know, one, one thirty in the afternoon. And then I go back to my car. And all while this whole Johnny Hoopla is happening, we keep hearing, man, Dane Evans never never leaves. He's just like <laughs> study, 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 always study, always study, always study. And I would go to my car to go home and Johnny's across the parking lot getting in his car going home. And I'm like, wait, the backup quarterback, nobody shuts <laughs> up about how he just studies nonstop. And Johnny, who's supposed to be getting his football career back, he's, he's taken off right away. Yeah. And I don't know the circumstances around it, but it was every day. Yeah, It but was this, every single day. But this was also me trying not to read too much into it. His very first day at training camp, I'll never forget in Hamilton, He's signed. He's done the press conference. I go to the camp, like McMaster's field on the Monday, and Johnny walks in in sweatpants when there's already guys in pads out on the field. And internally, like externally, I'm like, whatever. I don't want to make a big deal about this and go on. Oh, my God, Manziel was 15 minutes late this morning to his first practice. (laughs) But uh, internally, I was going, hmm. Like, I was kind of like, oh, this is kind of stuff we've heard about. I'm like, this doesn't look great. If I was him, maybe I would try to be a little bit early just to send a message. But I'm like, that's not who he was. That's not who he is. For a lot of people, I think, and we've only got like eight minutes left here, but for a lot of people, I think they look at, you know, why wasn't the CFL in this documentary? That was the complaint from a lot of CFL fans on on social and all the rest. And I had the same thing where I was like, oh, I wish they would have covered more of like his journey up here and like what the battles were and stuff. But in reality, if they do that, they would then have to also cover the AAF and they would have to cover the fan-controlled football league. It's like, I don't think Netflix wanted to cheapen the product of this documentary. Even if they would have put 30 seconds of montage in of him playing in a variety of leagues, I don't know what purpose it would have actually served because the damage was already done. We were just the leftovers. And the biggest thing I came away with after watching him talk about his mental health and his drinking and wanting out of Cleveland and hating the game and totally being despondent, why the hell did he come to Canada? That was my biggest takeaway. Seeing all of that, I'm like, by the time he came to Canada, in hindsight, watching this documentary, it was over. There was yeah. no path back. There was no reconstructing of the, the myth and the lore. He was an extremely talented football player trying to get by on all talent, no work, and just hoping that he would come up here and it would turn into somehow an NFL opportunity again. And I'm like, when I watched the where he was at at that point in his life and he came up here, now that I see it through his eyes and through the, the length of his journey from high school to the CFL, I can't believe he came to Canada. It doesn't make any sense. There was no point. He was not getting back to the NFL. Yeah, I feel like all the stages of Johnny's football career, it was less of a Johnny than the previous one. Like college football, he comes in, he's energized, wants to prove himself. Boom, takes off. And then everything else starts and kind of after his Heisman year. And then second year, eh, maybe not so good. Gets in trouble, gets suspended for a half. Stupid. Gets suspended for the first half of a game. And then it was less than the previous one. And then he goes to the NFL, add more money into it. He's in a position he doesn't want to be in Cleveland. All of a sudden, it's less of a football player. And then he came to Canada 
And watching that documentary and, and and having memories back to what it was in 2018 in Hamilton, I just thought to myself, he had he had mailed it in already. Yeah. And he was trying to get back. I don't even know what he was trying to get back. He was I think just he was trying, trying to score a contract in the NFL. Oh no, man, where I somebody th- could fix him. I think he was trying to convince himself that he could write his own narrative at the end. That's what I think it was. I think he he had an incomplete picture of himself in his mind and he was trying to find a way to write the ending that he wanted because he wanted to be in control of his story because he wasn't in control of his story by the time that he got to AM or when people started talking about him or people started writing about Johnny football or people were writing about what he's going to be in the mock drafts or talking about what he's going to be in the NFL or how he's going to be with the Browns or any of that stuff. I, I just feel like he wanted to try and control the end of his story, but he wasn't going to put the work in to actually control it. Like, that's the thing. Everything this dude does seems like it's fraudulent. That's my biggest takeaway, I think, from it all. It's just that it's like he wants something and he wants to show people things, but he can't really do what's required to actually show that. I I should mention as well, this is crazy. In 20, I forget when it was, my dad and I went down on a baseball tour and we, we went and saw a game in Pittsburgh. We saw a game in Cleveland. And my dad goes, do you want to go over to the, the Browns training camp? And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. We went to Brea, Ohio, Johnny Manziel's first Cleveland Browns training camp practice. We stood 10 feet away from him and watched him warm up with Connor Shaw and Brian Hoyer. So seeing the film and the footage of him in his Browns training camp, I'm like, oh, my God. I was standing on the field at Berea when he did that. And four years later, I'm interviewing him as he gets debuted as the Hamilton Tiger Cats starting quarterback. But I want to squeeze this in here, Kyle, at the end, because this is my kind of my my long lasting memory of this whole Manziel CFL saga. And I know that's why a lot of people would have come and listened to this podcast is not just two dudes breaking down a documentary. Um, the Tiger Cats schedule that year at Calgary, they lost 28-14 in week one in 2018, right? So um and, you know, again, to your point about Dane Evans, and that was Bryant Moniz and Vernon Adams Jr. and Dane Evans and Johnny Menzel and Jeremiah Masoli. That was the five quarterbacks in camp that year. And I remember seeing, like, the review on the iPad where Luke Tasker and Jeremiah Masoli are looking over something seriously, and then Johnny starts laughing and slaps his leg and walks away. And he was just like, this game is so dumb and silly and ridiculous. So that's my memory from week one. Week two, they went on the road at Edmonton, 38-21. They beat Winnipeg uh, at home, 31-17. Week four, okay, this is my long-lasting memory of this whole journey. They're playing at Saskatchewan. And in the pregame warm-up, I see the other quarterbacks, Dane and Jeremiah, working together and working through their rhythm and the routines that everybody got to know in 2019 and 21. And, and Johnny was just sprinting around the field in random directions, totally random. And he had picked a receiver, some guy on the practice roster or something, that he was sprinting around and just slinging it. Sidearm, 50 yards over there, 35 yards over here, behind the back pass, 25 yards over there. He wasn't even warming up. He was just being erratic and random and weird. I've never seen a quarterback warm up like this. And I'm standing at field level, and I, I went up to June Jones, and I was like, what's going on? Why is he doing this? Why is he warming up? He goes... He's already missed a couple of meetings. And this is not to slander Johnny and anybody in the Tiger Cats organization, anybody in Montreal, but this is the takeaway I have from his entire time in the CFL. I asked June, what's going on? This is the weirdest warm-up I've ever seen. And he just said, he's missed a couple of meetings. I think we're going to have to trade him. Like, they're literally on the field warming up for a game. And June says to me, I don't think we can keep him. I don't think this is going to work out. I think he's the same dude that he's always been. I don't think I can fix him. I don't think we can make this any better. 
the next game, I'm up in the booth. Eric Tillman at the time, the general manager, comes up and he says, hey, guys, just so you know, um, if anything happens to Jeremiah here tonight, okay, and I don't want you to tell anybody about this, but just so you have the information to use at your disposal if it happens, if Jeremiah gets dinged tonight, uh, Dane is going to go in as the backup. It's not a disciplinary thing. We just think that Dane deserves an opportunity to get some snaps. <laughs> and it was Mike Morielli and I standing in the booth. We looked at each other like, the fuck? <laughs> what, what are you what are you talking about? I remember this story that you told me. It's like, what are what are you talking? Manzel's listed as the two. I was like, I, I looked at Morielli and go, dude, if Jeremiah gets hurt in this game, how the F do we explain Dane Evans coming into the football game? <laughs> like as the as the people presenting that with our voices, how are we supposed to go, oh yeah, this is what you heard, but but this is the real truth. And we've been told from the organization that it's not disciplinary when it's like it's very obvious that that was very strange. Yeah, and the thing that's crazy to me in, in, in a situation like that is if it were to have happened and Johnny doesn't come out, how do you explain keeping him back to the fan base or yeah. just you not explain it at all? You say Dane Evans deserves this opportunity despite us making a freaking, what, a 10-month chase for Johnny Manziel? <laughs> We had Kent Austin on every damn week. And Eric Burkhart, <laughs> the only time I ever made Sports Center, I remember the only time I ever made Sports Center, we had Kent Austin on during the height of Will Johnny come to the CFL? And it was after Eric Burkhart said, We are putting in this deadline. And I said, Did you know about the deadline before he made that statement? And Kent Austin said, He made up that deadline. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Amazing. Well, that's a great place to end the pod right here, Kyle, because we're running out of time. 